You're listening to the voice of the private sector. Welcome to Brian Bushlack's Business Briefing. Well, there is no doubt the Northwest is the epicenter for entrepreneurs, and this weekend's select executive is one of them. Jeff Sampson's company blending technology, branding, and gratitude. It's an interesting mix. I sat down with Jeff to get the download on his company, Upside Commerce. It's kind of simple. We're a rewards program like you've never seen before. What we decided to do was take a bunch of lifestyle brands and retailers, put them into one program. And then when it comes time to thank people for buying those products, instead of sending you 10% coupons, 20% coupons, we tie into your Spotify. We tie into your Netflix, your Hulu, your Vivo, your YouTube, your Fitbit, your Facebook. And then we deliver the one thing that you really want in an emotionally impactful and shareable way. It's an experience. How'd you come up with this? <laughs> <laughs> and, you've, and you've got time here. Tell me the backstory. So you know, the, the original goal when we started the company was to try to find a way to to create a direct relationship between consumer brands and, and consumers through the use of data. And uh, you know, there's been so many changes over the past couple of years in terms of how that's done. You know, Google does it by giving you a free email program and then digging through your email and finding things out about you and then charging people to use your information to market back to you. Uh, you know, I, I, think, I think that's called, you know, if you don't pay for it, you're the product. That didn't kind of that didn't fit what we wanted to do. So, you know, we started off, um, you know, looking at different vehicles, different ways that we could um, connect to a consumer in such a way that we could, uh, you know, with transparency, be able to access certain information. We started on discounting platforms. Thought we could make mobile coupons sexy. Uh, apparently, nobody can. <laughs> and um, we learned that early enough in the process that. You know, for us, it's a question of finding the vehicle and the currency that work. And the challenge here is to find a vehicle which is eminently understandable and identifiable and, and comfortable from a consumer standpoint. Because everybody wants new, but we don't like learning new. So it had to be recognizable, and, and, and rewards programs really kind of fit that bill, right? I, everybody has a rewards program, and you know, there's some fantastic uh, some fantastic. Um, evidence out there in terms of like how little changes in the things which make up a program yield incredible results. Uh, Chase Sapphire last year uh, decided that somebody really smart at Chase figured out if people like getting 50,000 free miles, I'll bet you they love getting 100,000 free miles. Brilliant. Well, yielded big results. Um, You know, I don't know if you're a Chase Sapphire holder, but they met their annual membership goal in two weeks. They sold out of the, of the metal used to print the cards and shut the program down um, after, uh, after it basically outperformed their wildest expectations just because they tweaked the, the, you know, the, the currency in the program. And so you know, there's all this evidence out there. We saw that and said that, that is the correct vehicle. Um, but what are we going to do different? And, you know, for us, it, it was about being able to have an ecosystem. And, you know, and, and there's these coalition programs that have been f- 
phenomenally successful outside of the United States, Air Miles, Nectar, um, even Payback, which was the precursor to Plenty uh, that's now used here. The difference was is that most of them were all retailer-driven. And the, the answer was, let's get consumers to concentrate their purchase power amongst us as a group. Great idea. And we'll create these points, and then these points can be used at your place, it can be used at my place, it can be used at Fred's place. And, well, we never saw any evidence of a successful coalition program in the United States. And we had to figure out why. And, you know, the, we have wonderful advisory board members, and um, one of them used to be the chief technology officer at MCX, which was um, a, a program that was coming out. And it was a, the in, industry's response to Apple Pay called um, Currency. And he, his name's Pete Bigley, wonderful guy. And he was the one that said, well, you know, you really don't have to look any farther than kind of what we've experienced. And then that is we don't play well together. We don't collaborate. We compete against each other every single day. So it makes it really hard to have a shared common goal when we're trying to kill each other. The other thing is, is that we've noticed affinity runs to brands. Typically, the number one factor in the selection of a retailer is convenience. So if you put the two of them together, then you've got the start of an ecosystem, which could be pretty powerful. And so we look at it as a multi-sided marketplace where brands have a certain thing that they need to get out of the coalition. And retailers have a different need to get out of the coalition. The one common thread is that they all need data. And even if I have my own program within a, a, you know, a retailer, it's I only know what happened within my four walls. And I'm really limited when it comes to the perspective of knowing how do I view that in context of what they did after they left my place. So that is something where, and then you look at the brands, and the brands are just starved, period. Because whatever information they do get is typically at a market level. It comes in after the fact. And then you have consultants who come in and try to cobble together a Frankenstein image of, of of what your you know your consumer might look like and it's all assumption driven and, and it's not in real time and so for us to be able to create the a program which would work for consumers just like you know Chase Sapphire did and to be able to satisfy the needs of all of the constituents then we had to have had to have a coalition program which included both brands and retailers and to our knowledge we're the first ones to have done it now now we get down to the currency part and, you know, to be unique, you know, giving cash back is not a unique thing. You can give more cash back, you can give less cash back. But one of the things that we learned getting to this stage is that the mind of the consumer has changed, mostly driven by millennials. And there's lots of great studies out there that, that indicate this. Pandora was one of the most famous ones. Um, never really published, but wow, um, eye-opening. Um, and then some of the more meaningful ones, Havas, uh, meaningful companies, Havas Media, 300,000 people surveyed who said 74% of the brands that they use every single day could go away and they would not notice. That's a, that's a, a dreadful statement if you're a brand marketer. Um, the, the last piece for us was effectively from Accenture Strategy, which said, you know, they asked the question about seven different times. And it, this was a kind of a generational compare and contrast. How are these millennials different from the rest of us? And what was wonderful was no matter how they asked the question differently, this answer was the same. 
And the, and the punchline is there is no level of discount that a millennial would prefer over an emotionally um, impactful experience. And that's got to be taken seriously. So that's what we decided to do. Um, we all, uh, as people, have stories about this one time, this thing happened. It was completely by surprise, but it changed the way I see things forever, right? Touches you in a way that, um, honestly, a, a discount or a coupon never could. And so that that's really, we looked at that, and I remember growing up, and you know, the, the, around, around the holidays, there was always somebody usually anonymous that would go in and pay off layaway balances and they always have the cameras you know the, the tv cameras there and genuine tears coming from family saying oh my god you've saved my christmas my children can you know can can have a real christmas now and and you look at the just the sheer joy the outpouring the the you know the gratitude and so that kind of formed the basis for what we wanted to do and and quite honestly it was you know loyalty's dead Loyalty is something that was misunderstood, demanded from others, and felt like I could buy your loyalty. And we come at it from a completely different angle, which is it's about gratitude. Brands can show gratitude, and over time that might feel like loyalty, but take control. Stop using your balance sheet to try to control people's behavior because gratitude goes so much farther. Boy, if you're looking to get your brand noticed, might want to reach out to Jeff Sampson. Visit UpsideCommerce.com. When we come back, we'll talk marketing with one of Seattle's top executives. Your business is our business. You're listening to Brian Bushlack's Business Briefing. Well, Seattle is obviously known for technology and retail, but it's quickly gaining a reputation for creative as well. I recently caught up with Scott Foreman, Managing Director at one of Seattle's award-winning agencies, Copacino Fujikato. First of all, uh, we have uh, added some new clients uh, that we're really excited about. Uh, and uh, so it's really about trying to manage growth and uh, excellence for our, uh, for our clients. It's definitely an exciting time, not only here in Seattle, but I just feel like this is the epicenter of the creative world. I know we have friends in Portland and the Bay Area and New York that might argue with that, but, I mean, a lot happening here in Seattle. Yeah, that's right. It's, it is amazing. The growth is incredible. Um, you know, for my industry, uh, an advertising agency, you know, Seattle has never been known as sort of the epicenter of creativity from that standpoint. But I see that changing in the, in the short term with sort of the inspiration from, from all these n- uh, new businesses and existing businesses that really changed the dynamic of, of, of uh, how people shop and how people uh, you know, consume products. Um, I can just see that uh, these businesses are going to be looking for an agency that can keep up with them that's local, too. So we think that that's a great opportunity. How'd you get into this business? Well, uh, it's funny. Uh, I didn't plan on getting into advertising. I don't know if anybody does. Everyone seems to fall into it, I guess. But I, I didn't study it in college, but I got a business degree. But I always enjoyed sort of the entertainment just, just, just as a consumer. And when I stepped back, I said, is there an industry out there that would kind of mix entertainment and business together? Uh, and uh, kind of advertising, you know, was kind of fit that, fit that description. Yeah. It's a cool business. If you're just joining us, Scott Foreman's the managing director at Copacino Fujikato. And, uh, you know, we all have seen Mad Men. I mean, we're all 
you know, big fans of that show. How realistic is that nowadays? Well, I have to say, I think, I think today, well, you know, with all that went on Mad Men, I'd say there's probably more drugs and more sex today. <laughs> Uh, then no, nah, I'm just kidding. There's not. Uh, actually, <laughs> actually, uh, it's a great show, and there's a lot of truth to to the show. But I, I think, of course, it's overplayed uh, a bit um, for for dramatization standpoint. But the actual the actual sort of thinking that was shared in Mad Men, you know, some of the problems that that, that clients would have, and how uh, Don Draper would 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 frame up a solution. That's actually pretty accurate. Okay, so you said you did plan to get into this business, and I, a lot of people, you know, end up in advertising or marketing or sales that didn't plan that, but they have communication skills. And uh, you grew up in Southern California, so you were sort of in the entertainment industry at the very outset, right? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I guess uh, La La Land, right? And uh, we called each other Boobala and shmo- you know, Shmoobala and stuff. We, we'd air kiss with each other, but... Uh, but yeah, you know, it is a great place to grow up, uh, to be surrounded by that, and and sort of the power of a creative idea. And I really think, in the end, that's what agencies do, right? They believe in the power of a creative idea to to change the direction of a client's business, uh, and uh, and a great story of a brand uh, can make people have an emotional attachment to it. And, and we see that you can point to examples of that, and uh, and that's what I think I get excited about. You got your start at Disneyland too, right? I mean, so what a great springboard. Yes, I did work for uh, the Magic Kingdom uh, d- throughout college. It was a, gr- it was a great experience. Um, and I, it, it's funny that it actually, working in that brand and, and being immersed in it, where you didn't call customers customers, you called them guests, that when you were in front of guests, you were on stage, uh, not, not just, you know, because it was like a show. Uh, and they had their own language, and it really taught me the power of sort of driving a brand idea through the line and where your employees are so immersed in it that they just sort of reflect it back to, to those that you want to talk to. And, and it, was just a great, it was just a great time. So you came to Seattle, what, over 15 years ago, and kind of talk about that journey you've been on the last 15 or so years. Well, uh, thank you. Yes, I came 15 years ago. I came up to uh, join a company, an ad agency called Publicist Seattle, uh, and they had a little tiny wireless uh, client called VoiceStream. And many people may know it, uh, but it ultimately uh, uh, became T-Mobile. And I launched T-Mobile into the U.S. market back in 2002 and ran that business until about a year and a half ago. And so it was really a great ride. Uh, you know, a dynamic business and had to kind of reinvent the brand three or four times along the way because the, the category would change. That's pretty awesome that you were a part of that. I mean, and now what for so many of us is a household name right here in our backyard. Yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's really a, a testament to, uh, to a lot of the folks at T-Mobile, uh, a lot of really visionary folks, uh, a lot of folks I worked with at, at the agency. Uh, and there was also another consulting company called Profit that was uh, that joined us, and and especially the most recent uh, kind of reinvention with the Uncarrier was really born out of a failed merger attempt with uh, AT and T Wireless, where you know T-Mobile really didn't know what to do after that, uh, you know, uh, ha- didn't happen. And so they said, you know what? Let's take on some of the industry taboos, right? So things that the other, the bigger guys would never do, and they start doing it, and and the res- the rest is history. 
It helps to have a CEO like John Ledger, too. I mean, this guy on social media has just blown up. I mean, it's amazing. Yeah, John Ledger is an amazing guy, uh, and he, uh, he really embodies uh, the, the brand. He, you know, as, as somebody who's, who's not happy with the status quo, uh, he, uh, he, he's just a, he's, he's a, he, he likes to misbehave in the category, which is fun. Uh, he, he likes to, uh, he likes to kind of needle the big guys and really reinvent things that they would never do. And so I think he's a, he, I think he's the perfect face for that brand. And, uh, and certainly he's done a great job and with him and Mike Siever, the CMO and, uh, or COO and Andrew Sherrard, th- those guys have done a great job. And if it doesn't work out, he could fall back on slow cooker Sunday now because he's got that going for him, right? So, lot, I mean, lots of fun stuff over there. Let's talk about Copacino specifically. Uh, it's been a great year, as you mentioned earlier. What are you most proud of of your company, and what are you looking to expand on in the future? Okay, that's a great question. Uh, you know, we're really proud, uh, first off, that we have a great diversity of clients, right, from the Mariners to, uh, to the Holland America line to Primera. Uh, to Symmetra, to Chateau St. Michel. I mean, we have a great diversity of clients. I'm leaving some out, too. I don't mean to, but uh, it's really amazing. And, uh, um, you know, I think what the first thing is I'm really proud of is that seven, seven clients have been with us more than 10 years. And so it's really a testament that we have an overdeveloped sense of responsibility to really help clients be successful. And so we love those long-term relationships. Uh, I think that as we grow, uh, you know, we want to grow the right way. We want to have uh, clients who really believe in the power, like I said, of a creative idea to help change the fortunes of their business. You know, we want to, uh, we, we, we tend to attract clients that are, uh, that have the confidence that, that want a, a fresh perspective on their brand um, uh, and who really like to uh, lock arms with their agency uh, to, to go into maybe some uncharted territory. So we're really fortunate to have those types of clients on the roster and I think going forward we'll, we're, we're looking for those types of clients um, yeah. talked about the creative uh, shift to uh, you know Portland for years has seen that thanks in large part to Nike and Wyden and Kennedy being there but I, I really get this feeling like uh, you know Seattle there's this magnetic pull if you will to what's happening here Yes, that is absolutely true, and and it's being done mainly by the clients that are, are being based here, right? So you have, you know, all the ones you could list out, you know, uh, Amazon to Expedia to T-Mobile to Microsoft, and I mean, just on down the line, right? And they're they're bringing in this amazing creative talent, right? Uh, I think I think for my industry, uh, these big brands didn't think they could get the creativity locally, uh, that they had to go to New York or Chicago or or San Francisco to, to get the kind of creative thinking. Um, but that's, that's simply not true. You know, most of the folks that populate my agency have come from big markets. And they've actually wanted to go and, 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 and come to Seattle uh, uh, to, to experience this, this, this amazing nature's beauty with all this amazing creativity and music and arts and business. And they want to just be part of it. And, and they're residing at my agency now. So what's happened is that we can bring that big agency thinking locally. And really the challenge is just getting our word out to, to the bigger clients to say, hey, listen, uh, you don't need to go to New York. You can, you can have a place right across the street. Well, no doubt, plenty of creative talent right here in Seattle. Thanks to Scott Foreman for joining us. And thanks to you as well. When we come back, the second half hour of Business Briefing, we'll talk tax reform with one of the region's top experts.
Brian Bushlack is back with Business Briefing. And moving past the bottom of the hour across Seattle, Bellevue, and Tacoma on Talk Radio 570 KVI and Portland, Vancouver on Freedom 970. Well, tax reform almost complete. And I hate to break it to you, but the estate tax isn't going anywhere. I know a lot of clients out there, they were hoping this would be the year. It's not the case. You better get that estate planning underway if you haven't done it already. Now time to get a breakdown on what's happened. The latest report, this is not finalized, but we're getting close. So we sat down with Michael Lortz at Geffen Mesher. Well, here's the deal. So the U.S. Senate, uh, very early in the morning on December 2nd, finally passed a tax bill. Of course, the House of Representatives had already passed theirs. Uh, In passing the Senate version, they made some last-minute changes. So, as usual, things are exciting in the world of tax. And we are now awaiting the results of the Senate and the House working together uh, to reconcile the differences between the two bills because there are some major differences. Let's talk about the biggest changes from when I last talked to you. What did they come out with that struck you most? You know, both the House and the Senate, all the way up till that bill passed the Senate, they were both going to strike the alternative minimum tax, AMT. And I personally was pretty excited about that. A lot of our clients are hurt by AMT. Well, the Senate has added it back. So they are going to tweak it, make it a little bit less impactful. But both for corporations as well as individuals, the Senate now does still include the alternative minimum tax. Of course, the House eliminated it. We will see where that ends up. Let's talk about property taxes as well. Has there been any movement there? Absolutely. So with respect to property taxes, the House bill had said that even though state and local income tax deductions were going away, they would still allow property taxes up to $10,000 for individuals to deduct on their personal residences. Well, the Senate has now conformed to the House bill. So state and local income tax deductions would go away, but you'd still be able to deduct up to $10,000 of property taxes. Obviously, that's huge for Oregon residents here, right? That's right. You know, here in Oregon, uh, people are pretty concerned about the ability to deduct state income taxes going away. Uh, We do have a high income tax rate here, up to 9.9%. So the ability to continue to deduct property taxes is uh, some consolation uh, to that. Michael Lortz joining us at Geffen Mesher. Let's talk about uh, the increase in the uh, deduction for pass-through income. Uh, This really was the headline for me as a business owner and entrepreneur. I deal with this, and they actually have sweetened this a bit. That's right. Now, this is very much unclear as to what will end up becoming law because, frankly, the Senate did exactly what you said, Brian. The Senate has increased the amount of deduction that they would allow the owners of pass-through entities to claim against their business income. So pass-through entities are S-corporations and partnerships, including LLCs taxable as partnerships. So a a nice deduction that the Senate would allow for. Uh, The House, on the other hand, instead of a deduction, the House would provide a lower tax rate on that type of business income. And of course, this is all being done because there's also a large reduction in the corporate tax rate, which is not applicable to pass-through entities. And so uh, both the House and the Senate want to make sure that small businesses organized as pass-throughs also get tax relief. 
Let's talk about CapEx as well. I know you touched on this with uh, private jets, obviously some big things going away when it comes to 1031 exchange, that being one that we discussed. Um, CapEx benefits, though, would last longer. So that's, I guess, a good piece of business. That's right. So, you know, we, we're going to enter into an era, it appears, of 100% bonus depreciation, and that would last all the way until 2022. Uh, in the Senate version of the bill, they would continue to allow bonus depreciation just at a lower percentage rate uh, for a number of years after 2022. So equipment, furniture, corporate jets, solar panels, all of those types of assets would benefit greatly from those depreciation provisions. One of the headlines is for big corporations repatriating profits abroad, bringing them back to the U.S. Sounds like they've cranked up the, uh, the tax rate on that a little bit here. Yeah, there's still significant incentives for large corporations to bring those profits back home. Uh, what that will mean for the economy is, of course, a big subject of debate, uh, not an area of my expertise. Uh, overall, the international tax system that we have in this country would change significantly with these tax reform bills. Uh, the end result, of course, the goal is that foreign profits will come back to the U.S. and that U.S. companies doing business overseas will be taxed in a more reasonable manner. Okay, here we are into December now. We're winding down 2017. This year has flown by. Obviously, a lot happening here and a lot could change again before we get to a final version when they, I guess, come together, hopefully, on this. Um, any predictions here on what we should be keeping an eye on? Well, the timing of this tax bill will be interesting. It appears best guess right now that the reconciliation community will get their work done so that the full House and the full Senate can vote on a single unified bill with the thought being that that bill might actually be passed by both chambers December 14th, December 15th, something like that could allow the president to sign it before Christmas. Quite frankly, uh, this would be record-setting pace for a large piece of tax legislation to actually become law. Michael Lortz joining us at Geffen Mesher as we approach year-end here. What advice are you giving your business owner clients? Because I know the phone's got to be ringing off the hook with all of this news. You know, right now, it's a little bit hard to plan for what type of entities we should have going forward. And it really depends a lot on which version, the House version or the Senate version, uh, becomes law. And of course, we expect it'll be some sort of uh, amalgamation of the two. But with respect to this year's planning, if you have business income that you can defer from 2017 to 2018, in general, that seems like a pretty good plan because we're expecting lower taxes on business income in 2018. Okay, looking forward to 2018, uh, you have so many clients in so many different sectors. I like to get your pulse on the economy here, particularly across the Portland market. What's the mood? You know, the mood is still pretty positive. Uh, I think everybody gets a little bit nervous as we get toward the end of a decade, expecting that at some point this upswing's got to moderate and become a down cycle. Having said that, uh, a lot of our clients are fairly bullish on the economy. Obviously, you can see what the stock market thinks. It's been doing quite well. Uh, and if this tax cut package does become law, I think that will provide at least a short-term shot in the arm with respect to optimism. 
That's good to hear. And commercial real estate, too. I know you focus on that. That's where really a lot of that conversation starts with the length of this expansion, the amount of tower cranes we see in the skies, all the building that's going on, and the influx, quite frankly, in population growth in Portland. It really is remarkable when you think about what's happened here the past five years, isn't it? Well, that's absolutely right. And of course, when it comes to the real estate world, real estate's impacted by a whole lot of factors. And one of the factors impacting real estate in the Portland area right now, similar to other metropolitan areas, is regulation. Uh, That and construction prices. Uh, There's a lot of demand for new housing, uh, for new office buildings, but at the same time, the cost of building new buildings has skyrocketed. And so what we're seeing is actually a little bit of a slowdown, and it primarily is because costs are so high, both with respect to construction costs, as well as the cost to get through the the city and county uh, design fee requirements. At the end of the day, projects that used to pencil out don't pencil out so well when the costs are so high. All right, Michael, thanks for keeping us updated. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you, Brian. Michael Lortz, one of the top experts in the region, working with closely held family businesses and real estate investors as well. If you'd like to reach out to Michael, his email is mlortz, that's L-O-R-T-Z, mlortz at G-M-C-O. And when we come back, we'll wrap up the show. One of the Northwest's favorite wineries has a new location. You're listening to Brian Bushlack's Business Briefing. Approaching the top of the hour across Seattle and Portland. Glad you could join us. News, traffic, and weather straight ahead on our network stations. Well, there's no doubt the wine industry is one of the most challenging businesses in the world. It blends agriculture, inventory, and marketing. And you'd better be good if you're going to be successful. Well, two people who have done it probably better than anybody in our region are Craig and Vicki Luthold, the dynamic husband and wife team who co-founded and co-own the exponentially award-winning Mary Hill Winery. And after planting their winery in the Gorge 15 years ago, they just opened a gorgeous new tasting room right there in the heart of their hometown, Spokane. We were home for the holidays uh, a year ago, and uh, we have a home here in Spokane. Uh, We've kept that home, and we have somebody who lives in it full-time that becomes our roommate when we come home. And there's a small little tasting room just down the road here uh, in this place where we're located called Kendall Yards. We were at this tasting room with some friends, and we walk out, and we see that there's a big hole in the ground with a sign that says, hey, if you're interested, uh, inquire about uh, space here. And, well, we went out to dinner with our friends, and in the middle of the night, I woke woke up and I leaned over and I start shaking Vicky and I go, you know, it would be a really cool place to have a tasting room. So here we are a year later and our doors are open and people are tasting wine here. Okay, so Vicki, you get woken up at uh, two in the morning. Did you start planning this right then and there? Did you tell Craig, hey, go back to sleep. We'll figure this out tomorrow. No, we started planning right then and there. And we were convinced Kendall Yards was the place to be in Spokane. Really vibrant new neighborhood, lots going on. Everyone wants to be down here. It's really cool to see this development. I mean, uh, this city really needed this, didn't it? Yes, it did. This is this area has been tried three times to be developed, and Spokane wasn't ready for it at one point. 
Uh, it wasn't capitalized the next time, and it all came together this third go around, and it's really developed beautifully. They've done a great job. The two of you have built uh, one of the most spectacular wineries in the region. We've been to Mary Hill on location three or four times and broadcast in the spring and summer. You've got the concert series. We'll talk more about all that in a bit. Um, but when you get into something like this, it's like a whole new endeavor, isn't it? Even with all the experience you have, this is very different, isn't it? Having a remote tasting room is a completely different animal. You know, you don't have the production facility. You're just basically a retail outlet where people can come taste your wines. But I think what differentiates us and why I think this is really going to work well is, you know, we do 35 different varieties of grapes. We make more than 60 different wines. So we're really kind of a showcase of what Washington State can produce and what we can offer people. And this is special because you're from here, right? This isn't like you opened up a tasting room in a remote location. You live here, you're from here. So this is really part of your community. It's probably, a, well, it, it's a true homecoming for Vicki and I. We talk about this all the time that, you know, this is uh, really special for us. It will allow us to spend a little bit more time here in Spokane and uh, live in our own house. It's kind of weird, actually, when we were uh, getting everything set and ready to open up, we would leave here and we'd actually drive to our house. And when we're down at the winery, we have our residents up above the tasting room and we would literally just walk up the stairs and there we are. But here we actually go into our own home and we've got all our own stuff and we sleep in our own bed <laughs> you're not sleeping in the back room at your tasting room which i mean would be very enticing because the view here is spectacular i want you to set the scene for our listeners who haven't been here because this development is fairly new uh, what a spectacular setting this is here it kind of reminds me of the winery and then the tasting room you already have yeah we're joking that now if we do these more in other places we have to have a river to overlook we have to have a beautiful view and we have to have an antique bar so we're looking over the spokane river back at downtown spokane which i think is the most beautiful view of spokane because we see all the historical spires and pillars of the town and uh, we found an antique bar to keep that theme going outside of philadelphia so that bar sits in our reserve room and Craig made all of the tasting bars that are here in the Spokane tasting room as well. And I think what's really cool about this is the, it's this industrial, modern vibe, yet you've got that antique bar sitting here. It's this kind of this cool flavor, isn't it? Yeah, it's, a, it's big, high, 25-foot ceilings, open ductwork, a few beautiful chandeliers, and an old bar. It all kind of comes together nicely. Talk about this development, too, because I, I really want our listeners across Portland, Seattle. So many of us are in Spokane, particularly through the summer season, heading to Montana and Idaho and eastern Washington. Um, Walla Walla certainly gets lots of publicity, but really what's happening here in Spokane is pretty exciting. And this site has a, a history of its own, doesn't it? Yeah, so Kendall Yards used to be obviously a rail yard um, eons ago. And it is elevated above the river. It overlooks uh, Spokane toward the, looking back toward the east. It is developed with housing. Thousands of homes are going in here. We've got restaurants and bars and services. And they're really focusing on local businesses and Northwest-driven businesses here. So we're not having... Uh, national companies move into this neighborhood. They're focusing every single business to be some sort of a local touch and feel. 
I did my homework before I came here, like I always do, and I noticed that you've got uh, some great local restaurants here. So, I mean, this will become a destination. It already is becoming a destination, isn't it, Greg? Oh, no question about it. Um, we've seen the evolution and it kind of from an 80,000 foot perspective because we would come home, uh, uh, you know, and a few months would go by and there'd be some new apartment buildings or new condos finished and, you know, a few new retailers coming in and some friends of ours invited us to go out to dinner and they said, yeah, there's this new place called Kendall Yards. We go, oh yeah, well, I guess they were, were developing that. So we came down here, we fell in love with it the very first time we visited. It's a really, really special uh, addition to what's happening in Spokane and I honestly believe it's a game changer for the city as a whole. On location in Spokane this weekend you're listening to Vintage Across the Region. Brian Bushlack alongside Craig and Vicki Luthold, the founders, the co-owners of Mary Hill Winery. You know we spent so much time with you at the original winery. It's been so successful. We're going to talk more about that coming up in a bit but when you wrote the business plan I know you're you're both great business people and you have to be in the wine industry two in the morning you get the wake-up call we're gonna do this okay but I know you sat down and, and thoughtfully put together a business plan what was different about this plan than the original Mary Hill winery plan you know, we're a destination winery down at Mary Hill. Uh, we're roughly 90 minutes from the largest uh, major urban area in Portland. And uh, this is an urban tasting room. We really feel like um, uh, the wine club members in the general area and the people that join are going to get better utility of the space because they can stop here after work. They can come have uh, a few sips of wine with their friends. And of course, if you're a member, it's complimentary. So we really feel like the, the members will have um, a better uh, participation in what we're doing here and also will uh, utilize the space more than they do at Mary Hill because it's such a long drive out from uh, where they live. You talked about uh, with the original winery in the gorge, uh, you know, spending a lot of time there, right? Now you've got the tasting room in your hometown here. It's got to feel pretty good that, I mean, not that you're not going to be in the gorge that often, but now you've got really your hometown winery tasting room is here, right? Yeah, it's really been fun to spend time at home. We had maybe 10 or 15% of our time spent at home the last 17 years. So I'm hoping to up that to possibly 30%. <laughs> we'll get a little more time at home. And this will be a great excuse to be, be here. And this concept is really nothing new in the industry. I mean, opening tasting rooms, we're seeing wineries do that. Um, from, again, from a business perspective, I know that this is really important for the brand, isn't it? It absolutely is. You know, we, we have been to uh, uh, Woodenville and we've seen what remote tasting rooms have done for some of the wineries. And I really believe that it helps your overall exposure of the brand. You know, this isn't just about selling wine to uh, the people here in the tasting room, but it exposes a lot of people who will come in, they'll taste the wines here, and then they'll go to your local retailers and purchase the wines at well. So it's really kind of the full package of exposure and letting people just be aware of what you have to offer and giving them the opportunity to try some wines that they wouldn't normally get to try. Well, so many amazing varietals at Mary Hill. Visit their website, maryhillwinery.com. And next time you're in Spokane, stop on in this spectacular tasting room. That's all the time we have this weekend. We'll talk again next weekend right here.